Good to see you guys here tonight. Have your Bibles open it to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there's some at the table over there. You can go ahead and help yourself. Go get one. When we ended chapter 3, we left with this incredible affirmation of who Jesus was. He was baptized by John. We talked about the identification that that was to us. Being baptized by John, he was taking on this role of our Savior, identifying with us in our sinfulness, being baptized not because he needed to be baptized, as John says, I need to be baptized with by you, but Jesus said, suffer, it needs to be this way. And it was really the beginning of Jesus's ministry. We spoke last week about how Jesus and who he is, Jesus the Christ, Christ being Messiah or anointed one, is connected to the Hebrew tradition and Hebrew scriptures, that the gospel that we believe in is not just what happens on Good Friday, the crucifixion and the resurrection, that the gospel begins with the scriptures that were written long ago about the promise. The promise of the anointed one who would come, take away the sin and lead us into that salvation through the resurrection and ultimately be that reigning forever and ever. And that that was why Matthew started off with the genealogy. And we're actually going to go back to Matthew chapter 1 in December when we do our Advent. But uh, we saw last week that the whole beginning of this gospel was setting the stage of who Jesus was, why it was so important that he was connected to these promises, the lineage, how he fulfilled the scriptures, how many times we're going to read even still throughout the gospel as it was written, as it was written. It's just purposefully done so that we would understand that this is not just someone who's just opened up on the stage all of a sudden, that there is meaning, depth, and history to who Jesus was. And as he gets baptized, comes back out of the water, we hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased There's the spirit descending on him like a dove. Here is a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in one instance. And it was there that he began his ministry and was then, again, recognized as being the one that God was well pleased. Right after, we're going to start in chapter 4, we're going to see that Jesus has this time of temptation. And we're going to look at the three temptations that Jesus goes through tonight. Starting at verse 1 in chapter 4, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why did Jesus have to be tempted? Any thoughts? Why why did Jesus have to go through this time of tempting? You don't have to raise your hand. You can shout it out here. This this is Cafe Genesis. We we don't raise our hands. 
Okay, so to go through some of the things that we go through, to suffer like we go through, right? Kind of makes sense? Now, remember that Jesus is our Savior. If he succumbs to temptation, he's no longer our Savior. There's a lot at risk here. Now, I have heard, and you only hear this come up in theological inquiries or, or questions. Well, could Jesus actually, you know, have fallen and sinned? You know, could that happen? I mean, after all, he's the son of God. Well, I have a hard time believing that it would be considered a temptation if it couldn't happen. Jesus was fully man. Of course, the idea that it could happen, it seems so outrageous. But we have a lot at stake here, and Jesus is in a condition, purposefully so, to be weak. Forty days, forty nights without food. Has anyone ever fasted? I mean, it's not like, yes, I have fasted. I mean, because when you compare it to forty days and forty nights, I don't, I don't care how good your fast was, it, it probably doesn't measure up. Yeah, I fasted for 40 minutes one afternoon. You know, I mean, it's like we, we don't quite get to this level. We spoke Sunday how Jesus had to be a person of incredible discipline to be able to go 40 days and 40 nights without food as he is surrendering himself, fasting unto the Lord. Now, we want to look at the nature and context of this temptation. Jesus is here to fulfill the Hebrew scriptures as the promised Messiah, to redeem mankind from their sin by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. What is it that Satan would want to get him, or why is it that Satan would want to get him off track? And what is he trying to get him off track with? We know now who he is. We now know what he's supposed to be doing. So what do you think Satan is going to try to do? Well, he's going to try and get him off track in this scenario, this condition of who he is and what his purpose is. We're also going to see is how do we deal with this thing called temptation? Because the idea of temptation is to test, to prove. How do we deal with these things? And so that's what we're going to look at through these three temptations and in these passages. Now, it starts off saying that Jesus was led by the Spirit. I don't know about you, but usually when I think of temptation, it's kind of like God has left the building, you're on your own, deal with it. You guys ever get that feeling when you're being tested? Is it hot in here? Yes. Are you guys warm? Does someone who knows how to turn the air down, turn it down? I don't want anyone passing out on me. I've got the fans on, but I don't think the air is kicked in. You know, we get this idea of temptation that, man, I'm, I'm in it on my own. God is not here to help. I don't know where God is. I don't know what's going to happen. God, where are you? We have this plea as if he's just abandoned us. But here it says specifically that Jesus was led by the Spirit, which... It's a little bit troubling, actually. I mean, it's troubling in that we would think that God would actually lead us into this place. That God would actually want us to be tested. I hate tests. I've always hated tests. There was the pressure. 
One of my kids, whenever there's a test, man, the whole house gets stressed out. I won't say who it is, but boy, she freaks out when it happens. There's just this overwhelming pressure. Oh man, this is oh, so much is coming. And you know that, man, what I do in this moment matters. It has an effect on my GPA. It has this some kind of relation to what's going to happen in my future. And so much is counting on this and how I do. And so there's this pressure. And I hate that. And the idea that my faith can be tested troubles me because I just want it. I want it to be okay. I don't want my faith to be tested. I just want to assume it's all right and just go along merrily on my way. And we very often will turn a blind eye to where we are really at until we come to a test. We get numb. Life just gets dull. We lose our edge. We stop caring about the things of God until... Something happens and we realize, oh my gosh, there's a test happening here and I am being challenged. That's why James writes in James chapter 1, verse 2, 1, yeah, verse 2 and four, to th 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I, I just like to laugh at that point because no one I know does that. No one I know goes, oh, this is just nothing but joy, pure joy. When you have a test of various kinds, usually you're crying, you're complaining, you're griping, you're asking people to pray for you, you want them to know how bad it is, and so you make sure you embellish all that's happening so that you'll get as much sympathy as you can for whatever you're going through. And James says, oh man, this is good. He goes on and he says in verse 3, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so we see why we have tests. It's for our faith. What is our faith? It is our relationship, our belief and trust in God. Faith is just a spiritual word for where we trust and so testings, temptations that come upon us are to help our belief and trust and relationship with God move forward. Is that important to you? Is it? I see a few nods. Think about that. Is, is your relationship with God moving forward important to you? So then you guys all enjoy testings, right? No. Why not? Count it joy. And you see, the disconnect here isn't on the part of the scriptures. The disconnect here is in us. The reason we don't count it joy is because we do not realize the lack in our relationship with God. And it's not until we are pressed and we have nowhere else to go but to cry out to God that we realize where we are and maybe how distant we truly are. And so the testing of our faith is precious because it produces perseverance and it helps us to become mature and complete. You're not going to get mature. You're not going to grow in this walk with Christ unless you're tested. And so we see that it's a necessity. 
Even in Hebrews it says, though he were a son, speaking of Jesus, yet he learned obedience. He learned obedience through what? Through the things that he suffered. He learned obedience. We learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Our mindset is really important in this situation. And the idea that the devil then at this time came out here as he went out to the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now I know the devil is not a popular idea in today's age, but there is an evil that is personified in a being that we know as the devil, as Satan. And, and the word devil actually comes from the root uh, diabolus, and it is in its meaning to split or to divide. That's the meaning. It is to split or to divide, and it's talking about splitting our relationship with God. That's the idea of the devil. The devil is here to split that relationship that we have, that man had with God, and now that we have with God. And so Jesus goes out into the wilderness, led by the Spirit to be tempted by this person, this devil, this being, who is going to try and divide him from his purpose as the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's the stage that is set here. That's what's happening here. And the first thing that he does, as he challenges him, after fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The first thing he does is bring a question to his mind. Really? You're the Son of God? If you are, then do this. He questions his identity and wants Jesus to question his identity. If you're the Son of God, then you should be able to do this. And the whole idea is, how can you be the Son of God if you're here in this desert place and you're on the verge of death. Really? You're the son of God? Look at your condition. And I don't know about you, but can you identify with that kind of scenario? Where you find yourself in a desert place. You find yourself struggling. And you have this question in your mind. I thought God loved me. If God loves me, why would he allow me to do this? If, what's it doing? It's questioning the relationship you have with God. It's putting a wedge to try and divide you from who you really are as a child of God. Remember we talked Sunday, a couple weeks back, as we started that in, internal government, we talked about your mindset and we looked at Romans chapter 7 where Paul has the schizophrenic little moment where he goes through this passage and he says, if I do what I don't want to do, I prove that it's not me, but it's sin in me, because in my mind I serve the law of God, but in my flesh, sin. Who shall save me from this wretched condition? Thanks to Jesus Christ. And this battle that he's going through is something that calls into question, who are you really? Look at all the things that happen to you. Look at all the difficulties you go through. Look at all the weaknesses that you have. Who do you think you are? 
If you're really a child of God, you shouldn't be that weak. You shouldn't go through this testing. You shouldn't be in this position. There's the questions. There's the testing. There's the challenge to our belief in our relationship with God. Remember we talked about Paul saying, with my mind, I know who I am, but I still bear the weakness in this body. But it doesn't change who I really am. And we are constantly being challenged in this area of our identity and our relationship with God. If you're really a Christian, how could you have those thoughts? Anyone ever think that? If you're really saved, how could fill in the blanks? And what's happening? The question if is there to split and to divide you from the relationship with God. And it's what the devil did with Jesus here in this desert place. He challenged him saying, if you're the son of God, then take these stones, turn them to bread. Now, it's interesting because we see that he is challenging Jesus at his weakness. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. The idea of bread sounds good just about any time. But after 40 days, it's going to really sound good. And Jesus responds with scripture, with Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, It is written, man does not live by bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus had a very different relationship to Scripture than I think most of us do. It was a fabric of his life. It was like food. If I'm in a situation, being tested, hungry in this condition, and I'm challenged, here's the possibility. Just make these stones into bread if you're really the son of God. I have the ability to eat. I have the ability to satisfy that desire I have. What's the first thought I have? With Jesus, it was scripture. He had this love for the scripture that was woven into his life. It was a part of his mind, it was a part of his spirit, and it was actually seen in his body as he connects this idea of food being satisfied with actually God's words, that God's words are able to sustain my physical body. That kind of relationship with the scriptures and what he could do or what he could gain from the scripture. And notice too that Jesus responds not as directly to the devil as you might think. In other words, the devil saying, if you're the son of God, do this. Jesus doesn't go, well, I am the son of God and I don't have to do that. He said, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus is not acting as God. He is acting as man. He is not responding as a divine being 
as far as divinity is concerned, he is reacting as a human being. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 kind of answers the question why that we asked earlier, and it gives a little insight into how and why Jesus responds the way he did. It says in Hebrews 2, 17, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. That's us, humans, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, we need to be clear. It was a man who resisted temptation here. It was not God, it was a man. He did not do this with extra help. He did this as a man. In Jude it says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless to the Father. You see, that's available to us. Jesus is conducting himself as we are to conduct ourselves. Jesus is walking, living, acting as a man governed by God. He is our example. There is this terminology in theology called hermeneutics. And the idea is taken from the Greek where Hermes was this go-between between Zeus and the humans. And the idea of hermeneutics is that Jesus is our go-between. He is the one we identify with since we can't see who God is clearly. We can see who God is clearly in Jesus. And so as Jesus goes through temptation, what we do is we see that's how I am supposed to be. And he did this as our brother so that he could secure us. So that it's not God coming down and doing something that's not identified with us, that it is a man submitted to the will of God, perfect without sin, conducting himself as you and I are supposed to conduct ourselves. He is our example. Now, where are you compared to this example? That is always a question. That is always supposed to be where we are looking at to see how do I measure up to the person of who Jesus is? And we will never be what we should be. We will always be in Romans chapter 7 somewhere. I know what I'm supposed to be, but I'm not quite what I should be. But we do not lose sight of our brother, our high priest, who is our example. And as man as man could be, was in the desert tempted and did not succumb, but responded and said, no, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I can get all that I need from who God is and what he's given me in his word. That's our example. He goes on, verse 5, the second temptation. He says, then the devil took him to the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Satan comes back with a reverse strategy. He first attacked his weakness, his hunger, trying to get him to come to his physical hunger and weakness to get the food, make the rocks into bread and satisfy that hunger. But that didn't work. And so now he tries a second attack and he's going to attack his strength. He's going to come at him spiritually through scripture. And so he uses the scripture. And again, he challenges him, if you're the son of God. Now, the first one is, if you're the son of God, how can this be happening to you? You need to survive. You need bread to eat. God's abandoned you. If you're the son of God, take this rock and turn it into bread. Now he's challenging him again. And he says, if you're the son of God, make God prove it. <coughs> Throw yourself off the temple so that the angels will catch you up and it'll be spectacular. After all, the people are looking for a spectacular Messiah. They are looking for someone who will do something just like this. And so if you're the son of God, do this. After all, this is what the scriptures say. And he challenges him spiritually now. And he challenges him in that area of strength. But what he tries to do now is pervert the scripture to get Jesus to come to what his desire is, Satan's, rather than God's. I wonder how many times the devil has used scripture to divide people from God. I wonder how many times people will know the words but not be connected to the heart of God. How many times people will use scripture and misrepresent who God is in the name of Jesus? And they will quote passage, chapter and verse. And, and you've seen these things and you've heard of these people. Sometimes there is this group that will go and picket at funeral services for the soldiers who have fallen. And they'll say that, you know, this is God's judgment because, the you know, we are lenient towards homosexuality or something like that. And they have, they're sitting there and they're just trying to defame this intensely horrific moment in these people's lives saying, this is what you get because God's mad at us. And they'll have scriptures posted on their picket signs. And I wonder... How many people Satan has divided from the heart of God and has used scripture to do it? You see, it's not how much you know. In fact, if you have a lot of information without the right spirit, it can be a very dangerous thing. Out of context, manipulating scripture for you rather than for God. And whenever we use scripture for our self-serving motives, we're on dangerous ground. Even if we're looking at the scripture correctly. If we're using it for ourselves to promote our agenda, it's now taken out of this 
dynamic relationship it's supposed to have in our relationship with God, and it's been perverted. And that's exactly what Satan did here. He quoted the Psalms, and, but he quoted them for a purpose of the, himself. Jesus knew. Jesus responded again, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus is responding, says, I know the relationship I have with God, and I am not going to use this for my own gain. Remember again, Jesus is acting as a man. He doesn't want to make himself known by this spectacular method. In fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus, when the crowds would come, he would back away. They would want to come and raise him up as king, but he knew it was in men, and so he would withdraw himself. He did not want the public recognition. He wanted the recognition and obedience from God. It was never his desire to let a million people know who he was so that he could be understood and just everyone worship him. That was never his goal. His goal was to fulfill what the scriptures had said that the Messiah was to fulfill, to go to the cross, to conquer death, to conquer sin, to rise from the dead, and to be our advocate. That was his purpose. And that's who we worship. And so Satan tries again a different strategy. Jesus again responds with scripture. In verse 8, we see the last testing here, the last temptation. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus answered him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the de devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Now there's an attack on his purpose. There's an attack. This last temptation has to do with why he was here, what his work was. You see, first of all, he says, if you will worship me, just take this one moment, bow to me, I will give you all of this. Now, there would have been no temptation if it wasn't his to give. In other words, if Satan did not have the power and rule over the world, then he could not offer Jesus anything. There would be no temptation in that. And so we know just by how this takes place that the world, and we know this from the scripture, is under his rule. He is the prince and power, the God of this age, the God of this world. And he's challenging Jesus not only on what he is going to become, but how he is going to become this. You see, at the heart of all that we do is worship. This isn't about the position that we take, but it's how we take our position. This wasn't about Jesus. You're supposed to be known by everyone. This is how are you going to be known by everyone. Jesus, you're supposed to be worshipped by everyone, but how are you going to be worshipped by everyone? And I think a lot of times... Satan is very subtle in trying to get us to see things in a way that just, you know, it would be a lot easier if it was done this way. I know God has his plan, but here's really the easy way, a shortcut to get what God wants for you. Oh, bypass all that, you know, devotion stuff, all that, you know, surrendering your life, being obedient. 
just bypass that. We can, we can get to a new kind of holiness. It's a lot quicker. It's a lot easier. It's a lot more friendly. Just do it this way. And think about it. All Jesus had to do was bow down, worship devil, and then he could be worshipped, and then he could take charge. He could end world hunger right here, right now. I mean, he could turn stones to bread. He could fill, feed a multitude with just five loaves and fishes. Think of the things that he could do. He could heal the multitude's disease, famine. It would be abolished. There would be no more genocide. The wars that we've gone through, he could have stopped it all. Doesn't it make sense? Jesus, bow down, get it done, and fix this thing. Take the shortcut Boy, it just makes a lot of sense. And you see, we want to take the position, but how do we take that place? How do we take that position? Is as important as the position that we take. Who are you going to become? How are you going to become who you become is just as important. It's not just, oh, I want to be holy. How do you get to be holy? Oh, I want to be right with God. How do you get to be right with God? What is the means that you get to that place? Jesus said, if you go through any other place but by me, you're a thief. How do we get to be who God has called us to be? We have to do it the way God has called us to do it. We have to live lives of humility. We have to live lives that are surrendered. He has shown you, oh man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's how you get there. And any other way you try and get there, it's wrong. And you can't shortcut this life. You can't shortcut who you are in your relationship with God. Because at the heart of all of this temptation is worship. That's what the relationship we have with God is. We adore him. We worship him. We give him his worth. We acknowledge who he is. And what Satan tries to do is divide us from that place where we have that relationship with God, that worship with God. Well, you don't need to go that way. Here, go this way. It's a lot easier. And he divides our devotion, our love, our connection to God so we can get to the place where we want to get to a lot easier. You see, the, the path that God had for Jesus was through the cross. The path that God had for him was a difficult one. Satan would want to bypass that, bypass the cross, bypass the rejection that you're going to get from the disciples and all those people. Make the world better. Make it right now. Do all these good things. And it separates us from God and gets us off our mission. It gets us off of worship. And that's why Jesus responds and says, Away with me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And this brings an understanding of what worship is. 
It's not singing. What worship is, is giving God the place in your life that he deserves. It's giving him what he's worth. And that's why Paul could say in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies living sacrifices, wholly acceptable. It's your reasonable form of worship. It's the least you can do. It's giving of yourself to him. That is your form of worship. And so worship is giving of ourselves our will to God. Worship is living like Jesus did, obedient to his Father, not taking the shortcut, not giving in to the spectacular, not satisfying or living for his physical life. Jesus exemplified who we are to be, people who are hungry for God in a spiritual way. People that want to be what God wants us to be, the way God wants us to be. People who give to God our very lives because that's the least we can do. And that's what we are called to be and that's who we are called to be. The moment worship is taken out of our lives, we become less than what we are supposed to be. The moment that Satan can divide and separate us from this idea of worshiping God, we have just fallen and are not what we should be. And that is at the root of temptation. That is at the root of these testings that are taking place here. We will fail to be who we are meant to be. Psalm 119.11, it says, Your words have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I care about you so much that you are more important than my daily bread. See, that's the relationship that Jesus had with his Father. That's, that's the relationship that Jesus had with the Scripture. That's how he looked at this relationship with the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to close on this. First Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. I think we need to remember that part of this verse. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, I know people, and I don't even include myself in this situation because I know people who've gone through much more difficult things than myself. Through illnesses and pain through loss of loved ones. People who have been dealt just a bad hand when it comes to life. So it would seem. 
And as I read this passage of Scripture and I think, you know, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And I, I think, Lord, what about this person? What about so-and-so and what they're going through? God, are you there for them? And you see, the passage in Matthew, the temptation of Jesus, is saying, I am here I identify with you in the deepest weakness, in the most struggle, in the hardest pain that you have to go through. I am your priest. I am your brother. You can count on me. I know exactly where you are at, and I will help you through it. How? How can you help us through it? I have been there. I went through it for you. Amen. Amen. That, that is our high priest. That is our brother. That is what Jesus has done for us. And so we are not abandoned. We are not in this alone. God is not distant. He led Jesus. He is leading you. God, why would you lead me into this place of difficulty? Oh, count it joy. You don't see what I'm doing in you now. But man, if you could see from my perspective, it looks beautiful. You're getting to be so mature. You're being so complete. Count it joy. And remember, through all of it, worship. The Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. <laughs> Father, what a tremendous example we have in you. And Jesus, we are beyond words thankful for what you have done for us and who you are for us. And to know that you stand with us as our brother, as our friend, as our Lord, it brings such comfort to our hearts. And we know there will be times of testing. We know that temptation is always in front of us. But we also know that you are able to secure us and deliver us from any temptation, that nothing is beyond what you yourself have dealt with to some capacity. And we are thankful that you went through what we go through, but you did it without sin. And our eyes are on you. We want to follow in your steps. We want to make it through the desert just like you did. And so we look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith. You're our high priest. You are the promise of God to the whole world. And we are thankful that you are our promise. And we love you, Lord, and we offer ourselves to you as a form of worship in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>